Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for downloading or listening in whatever form you are listening. I'm going to talk a bit today about Brexit and the theme of betrayal, one of the most dangerous and potent themes in British politics. A look at the Lib Dems who have had their conference in Brighton, though few have taken much note, and then talk briefly about this new series I've got on the BBC of unscripted TV talks, the third series I've done where I talk without a script. This one on the theme of prime ministers we never had. I mentioned it last week in relation to the fact that Boris Johnson, who obviously doesn't feature yet because we don't know how he ends or how his career ends, but certainly a lot of the factors that explain why big figures didn't become prime minister apply to him. Um, But anyway, I'll talk a bit about that series, which is starting to come out and will be on the iPlayer. There's nine of them in total. First of all, though, Brexit and the narrative of betrayal. In British politics, betrayal is a potent word. It has, at times, caused turmoil in political parties. If you look at, for example, the Labour Party and the trauma it went through after its defeat in 1979, the most divisive and persuasive term was betrayal. The argument by Tony Benn and others was that the Labour government had betrayed party members uh, and the wider Labour movement, in inverted commas, because it didn't stick to its manifesto promises from 1974 or uh, produced a manifesto which didn't reflect in 1979 the views and hopes of its members. Betrayal. The moment people hear that word, they can get excited and angry. Uh, It applied to some extent with the new Labour era too. Uh, People felt betrayed by what they had misread as a great radical progressive moment of change in 1997, whereas actually if they had read the cautious incremental manifesto, they wouldn't have had such expectations, but there was a sense of betrayal. And in this Brexit debate, this is going to become, I think, a big and dangerous theme. Uh, You've already got the Brexit hardliners who believe that their cause of Brexit has been betrayed by Theresa May's Chequers Agreement, and they rightly acknowledge and protest that May's juxtaposition of her deal or no deal being the only options is itself an act of betrayal. They feel that their, albeit wholly vague, uh, alternative option that they call Canada Plus Plus has been airbrushed out of the script and therefore are ready to raise the betrayal narrative if it turns out that in some form or another it's a kind of version of May's checkers that becomes Brexit when or if Britain leaves in 2019. Equally and wholly valid is the position of a few in the Tory party, some in the Labour party, that another option is the equivalent of the Norway option, where Britain remains part of the single market and the customs union in some form or another. That is broadly Labour's position. People keep on saying Labour hasn't got a position. 
It's uh, vague in some respects, but in effect commits the UK to being part of what they call a customs union and a renegotiated position in the single market or a single market. These words are evasive, uh, the, and so on, but, but the basic position points to a different form of Brexit. So those who want that can cry betrayal if uh, May succeeds, massive if, in uh, getting a form of Brexit through the House of Commons, her form of Brexit, uh, which of course remains almost as vague as the other forms because it won't be checkers after the negotiation with the EU. And then there are some of us who believe that this whole mad phase of British politics has been wholly destructive from the decision to call the referendum onwards. The referendum campaign was predictably and in some ways unavoidably politics at its worst in the sense that referendums are battles, they're not education campaigns. I don't blame the Brexit people for uh, constantly claiming things that were not true. They were fighting a political battle. If they want to pretend that they would get hundreds of millions for the NHS uh, each week, that's up to them. It was for the other side to expose it as rubbish. And by the way, it wasn't the duty of the BBC to expose it as rubbish. The BBC, partly because it's never knowingly understaffed in terms of managers with time on their hand to analyse and reanalyse and so on, are looking into all these things. But if someone calls a simplistic referendum, that's the fault of the figure who called it, in this case Cameron. Uh, it's not the, for the BBC to then become a sort of public educator condemning the claims of one side more than the claims on the other side. Anyway, those of us who think from that point onwards it was a disaster and that all the op options available are objectively worse than staying in will also feel betrayed if that option isn't explored and Theresa May pretends that the only options available at this historic junction is her deal, again in whatever form it takes, or no deal, she is triggering rather than a resolution of the political turmoil, more turmoil on an epic scale because the numbers of people who will be feeling, in inverted commas, betrayed, will be huge. Pro-Europeans, the Norway advocates of out, the hardline Brexiteers, and they are represented in the country with various degrees of passion. Those who say, and no doubt truthfully, that polls report a lot of voters saying, why don't they just get on with it? That is their position now. But if, after some botched Brexit... May comes uh, back with, it starts to go wrong in ways I think it inevitably will, they too will feel betrayed. The only way of avoiding the betrayal narrative to some extent, I think, is the referendum option. I loathe referendums, as I've just explained. The last one was a simplistic nightmare. But I can just see no other way around this. And by the way, I don't say it because I see this as a means to 
achieve a, a remain uh, outcome by sort of agile uh, manipulation and all the rest of it. It could well go in a different direction, the outcome of the referendum, if there were to be another. But it seems to me that the parties are divided over Europe, as they have been really since Britain joined. And there is the prospect of parliamentary paralysis. And if there isn't paralysis, and Theresa May scrapes through with her Brexit deal, rather than ending this uh, turmoil, it will trigger years and years of more bitterness and anger, because betrayal will become the theme. And the only way around it is a referendum, where people can put their cases. I'm not at all sure, I know this is the view of the, the People's Vote campaign, that it should be either in or May's deal. The problem with that is that the betrayal uh, narrative will erupt before the referendum has even taken place, and there will become a fantasy that some paradise called Canada plus plus has been excluded, or indeed the Norway version of out. There will have to be options, but that is relatively straightforward. You're not dealing here with anything more deceptive or complicated than the original in-out referendum, which obscured layers and layers of complexity in ways that rendered that campaign a total farce. Historians will have dark fun looking back at the simplicity of that campaign compared with the complexities it obscured. So compared with that, I think it's a perfectly uh, simple exercise to present a number of options. Of course, there is so much anger around the issue, and there always will be, that this betrayal theme will surface whatever route is taken. But I think there will be less cries of betrayal. This destructive, emotive term via the referendum route. And uh, even though Theresa May has set herself against it, she needs to keep it in mind as she faces impossible hurdles to come. Uh, the EU negotiation, the battles within her own party, and then this Commons vote on her deal. And if she wins it, and she might, although she hasn't got the figures yet by any means, I've said here many times that Labour will vote against, not all its MPs will adhere to that, but uh, most will. She hasn't got the votes yet, but if she gets them, it won't be the end of anything. It would be the beginning of, we were betrayed. Um, that term and that debate was part of the reason why Labour was out of power for 18 years, why, we're coming on to them in a minute, the Lib Dems struggle now, the sense that voters felt betrayed in 2010 when many of them voted Lib Dem for reasons that were to the left of New Labour. They were doing it as a move to the left of New Labour and then up popped the Lib Dems in a coalition. Actually, that's a really neat segue into the Liberal Democrats. Lots of people, certainly in the media, which has on the whole, an, a curious definition of the centre ground, have asked why is it when there is such a gap on the centre ground of British politics, the Liberal Democrats aren't doing better? Well, I'm a sceptic of the term centre ground anyway, 
um, it, 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 it needs much, much clearer definition, as I've said on this podcast before. But there is a simple answer to that question, which is that if a party moves in a certain direction which goes beyond the boundaries of the party and uh, the views of many of its voters or supporters, it inevitably has a traumatic, almost existential crisis. And that's what happened in 2010. As I say, voters in that election, I know, uh, you know, in the area I live, there was a uh, Labour MP who lost a seat and people voted for the Lib Dems as a move to the left of, uh, of Labour. And then up they popped in a coalition with the Conservatives, and it was a coalition of the radical right. One of the myths of that early coalition period, at least, was that it embodied uh, the centre ground of British politics, because Cameron, George Osborne, uh, Nick Clegg were so obviously decent, and they were and are, it was kind of mistook for a sensible centrism. Whatever else it was, that was not the correct definition. And some of us wrote at the time that you can agree or disagree with what was going on, but it wasn't centrist politics, it was the politics of the radical right. Real terms, spending cuts as a response to a financial crash of 2008, blaming government spending for the extraordinary seismic flaws in the financial sector, was a response from the radical right. So you can agree or disagree with it, but don't pretend it was centrist to impose these real-term spending cuts, which of course are having consequences now. Local government wants a stronghold for Liberal Democrats in a degree of disarray, uh, having to cut back vital public services, the police lacking the numbers and crime, in some respects, rising, transporting chaos, and so on. It is a myth, only fashionable in British politics and America really fashionable, that spending cuts can actually make public services better. And anyway, it was the wrong response to a a financial crash where the private sector was also in, in crisis and lacking the means to expand, which is why governments around the Western world intervened with huge sums of money, not just to save banks, but as an exercise of reviving their economies. And actually, in 2008, Cameron and Osborne, then in opposition, were the only leaders of a mainstream party to advocate real-term spending cuts rather than a fiscal stimulus. And Nick Clegg agreed with them. There's no doubt that he did. But voters perceived his party as to the left of the new Labour government that actually had been instrumental in that fiscal stimulus. So they became part of something that challenged their identity and raised questions about what it is to be liberal. David Laws, uh, Nick Clegg's ally, used to write that Thatcher was an economic liberal why aren't we more Thatcherite? And it's an, he poses an entirely valid question. And they became more Thatcherite in this coalition. And as I say, those of us who wrote that it was a 
coalition of the radical right, Nick Clegg was got really annoyed with us at the time, said, no, no, we're progressive, we're progressive, another vague word and evasive word. And he listed with some validity, again, uh, some of the sort of progressive causes they were pursuing. But it was in the context of people like um, Oliver Letwin, who once said to me that Cameronism is reheated Thatcherism. It was in the context of um, a, a group of people who were still in many ways ideological and Thatcherite in their approach to public services and economic policy. And I was interested that Nick Clegg wrote in his memoir, it's a good memoir, well-written and thoughtful, that he didn't realise how ideological the Conservative leadership was. So that's why when a party embarks on a project which challenges the way it is perceived and challenges what its fundamental beliefs and principles are, a crisis will follow. And this crisis is deepened by the slaughter it got in 2015, which was barely helped in 2017. In 2017, again, a lot of people thought Europe uh, would uh, revive it because it is the most clearly pro-European party, but people aren't daft. When you've got such a small parliamentary party, you can say what you like about Europe. The key to saving the UK from Brexit is the Labour Party in all its ambiguity because it's got the numbers and the MPs and a young membership that is passionately pro-European. And so Europe doesn't save them. So those are the reasons. And Vince Cable, who is a decent figure, he is a social democrat, he's not one of these pure Thatcherite economic liberals, uh, can talk as much as he like about the march of the moderates and so on, the movement of moderates, the moderate movement. But moderate is not a word that excites. It is as vague as progressive and modernizer and centrist. And even if he provided it with deep definition, I think it will take a greater degree of introspection, painful analysis, and clearer definition about what the Liberal Democrats stand for post that coalition before they can even start to hope to recover. And uh, they're not helped by the fact that Vince Cable has said he's going to stand down at some point, but the timing is vague. That is clumsy, inept politics from a decent figure. It leaves them in limbo without a clear sense of who's going to be leader. When anyone starts talking in public about their departure, in just about any field, actually, they are finished. And given that Vince Cable was already semi-finished, frustrated by the lack of prominence, reflecting on the irony that he got more coverage when he was not in a, fig uh, in a position of such theoretical prominence as leadership, is not going to help the party recover. Politics is brutal, and there is no greater and vivid and compelling example of that than uh, the series I've been doing for the BBC on prime ministers we never had. They've started going out on BBC Parliament and are available on the iPlayer for months to come. There will, in time, be a box set of these prime ministers we never had. As good as any box set on Netflix, uh, it tops the lot for epic political 
drama because these were people who in some cases assumed they would be prime minister at certain key points. The most famous in some ways of the prime ministers we never had is Rab Butler. He kind of the term became associated with him. And there were times when he he didn't even hope, he, he assumed he was about to be made prime minister and he never got it. And then um, in the, the, the week this podcast goes out, we'll have had a, a look at uh, Heseltine, who of course... Was became the challenger to Margaret Thatcher and was seen as a prime minister in waiting for too long. And I think he would have been a formidable prime minister, perhaps one of the great ones. And the course of the Conservative Party would have been very, very different if he had managed to seize the crown in November 1990. But it went to John Major. Tony Benn is an interesting figure from the first week which will soon be on the iPlayer by the time you hear this podcast they'll probably be all out there on the iPlayer these three from this week Tony Benn some people say oh he was never a prime minister we never had he never had a hope of being prime minister that's not the case in from the mid-70s onwards there was feverish speculation hope on the left fear in the right-wing media and parts of the Labour Party, that Tony Benn would indeed be a Prime Minister. Jim Callaghan, who fell out with him badly, told him, Tony, you will be the next Labour Prime Minister if you become less disloyal to the leadership and show loyalty and teamwork, because he had so many mesmerising attributes. And he was, as Jeremy Corbyn would be the first to admit, a much bigger figure of the left than Jeremy Corbyn. And it remains bizarre that it's Corbyn who sees the crown and not Tony Benn, who would be utterly baffled, fascinated and thrilled to see the rise of Corbyn. And this week I also talk about uh, Roy Jenkins, who from the late 1960s was spoken of as a potential Labour leader and Prime Minister, the subject of intense speculation, uh, making Harold Wilson paranoid and neurotic with some cause because Jenkins had many loyal uh, followers within the Labour Party and the media and an extraordinary figure of British politics. So those are the first three. They are unscripted and ad-libbed. I, I kind of walk into the studio knowing a beginning and an end. All I can see is a clock going down to zero and I have to finish at zero or we do have to do the whole damn thing again uh, and it's just done in one take but it's a sort of like a conversation really um, I don't take notes or prepare too much in advance but I think the sim simplicity of it is works as in a nice contrast some of the sort of overwrought tv packages that can be um, a part of political broadcasting Anyway, it's those three, and then there are six more to come in the following weeks. Um, you can download them or watch them on the iPlayer. So next week, it's the Labour Party conference, which will be an important staging post, partly about Brexit, Labour matter in relation to Brexit because of the hung parliament. Um, they have power, the hung parliament. We often forget that this is a hung parliament, but that is the context of which the domestic political drama now plays out. So Labour's position matters hugely. People speculate about whether Corbyn will ever become prime minister. He has power 
now, partly to determine the course of Brexit. So that will be interesting, but a mere hors d'oeuvre compared with the Conservative conference to follow, where I predict, I'll talk about it nearer the time, that Theresa May has more levers to pull at a party conference than the rebels and the current media narrative of Boris Johnson overwhelming May at the conference will not quite play out in that form. We'll see. Thanks so much for listening this week. Uh, Do subscribe and tell others to subscribe, say it's compulsory, and I'll see you all next week. Thank you.